Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our sermon text is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. And yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Dear fellow redeemed, why are you here this morning at this early hour? This question was posed by an angel to a group of women in the morning of the first Easter. Their answer was that they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth. The women expected a dead Jesus and found an empty tomb. They were told he is not here, he is risen. This morning we seek the risen Lord. It is because of the Lord's resurrection that we are here today. The origin of Sunday worship is traced to the early church's desire to commemorate the Lord's resurrection each week. Not only does our worship depend on the resurrection, but I once read an article in which a pastor stated, justification, sanctification, baptism, communion, the inerrancy of the scriptures, evangelism, fellowship, hope, worship, these are nothing more than wasted words and pointless activities unless Jesus died and rose again. What a bold claim. This is also the central thought of our text this morning. Everything depends on the resurrection. It establishes our faith, assures our forgiveness, and guarantees our resurrection. First, it establishes our faith. The Romans used the cross not only as a means of executing, but also publicly humiliating the condemned. This shameful punishment was used for the worst of criminals. As a result, the cross of Jesus made him and his followers look foolish to the world. It appeared to onlookers that Jesus had been defeated. Likewise, Paul writes in our text, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Yes, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Repeatedly in the book of Acts and throughout Paul's letters, we see the resurrection of the dead at the center of his message and as the reason why he was put on trial. Let us examine the evidence in this case of Jesus' resurrection. 
there were not only two or three witnesses, as was required to establish a case under Jewish civil law, but the risen Christ was seen by over 500 brethren at once, as well as by the twelve, by James and the other apostles, and finally by Paul on the road to Damascus. Those who deny the bodily resurrection of Christ make liars of all these witnesses, while they, nearly 2,000 years later, call themselves truth-tellers. Besides, they must also make the ancient prophet liars, who bore witness that what God himself had told them, that he would raise up the Messiah. The resurrection of Christ proves that Jesus is who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God, who indeed would suffer and die, but on the third day rise again. The resurrection establishes our faith. Jesus is not only hope for this life, for as Paul says, if in this life only we put hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Have you at times looked to Jesus as only a hope for this life? Have you treated him as the world does, only as a moral teacher and example. So many quests for Jesus have led to a good man with good intentions who was defeated and executed. After the feeding of the 5,000 families, the crowd hoped to make Jesus a ruler by force. They looked for a bread king. Do you pray to Jesus only when you want material success? Is the church only a social function for you? I knew a woman who went to church with my great-grandmother. Faithfully, she attended church week after week, but she did not believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. My grandmother asked, great-grandmother asked her, why do you go to church? She had to admit it was because she always had, and to see her friends. Can you live in a house whose foundation you have removed? Ask yourself what makes the church valuable indispensable to you? What is the highest blessing it offers you? And you will find that it is the risen Lord Jesus himself. What is the baptism of your child if there is no living Christ to make your child his own? What is every service in his house if his name is only a name and he is not present to give you blessings and receive your devotion? What is the sacrament of his body and blood? If he remained in the grave, it his body is dust like that of other men. There is not a single feature of Christianity that one way or another does not rest on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Take this away and the entire church and all Christianity sinks into ruin. Secondly, the resurrection assures us of our forgiveness. Paul writes, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. To be in our sins means to still be controlled by them, to be surrounded by them and accused by them before God. One commentator describes our condition if there were no resurrection. Faith in a savior who died but failed to rise in vain because he cannot free us from our sins. And if there is no resurrection, there is no redemption, 
no reconciliation with God, no justification, no life and salvation. If Christ is dead, then every believer is forever dead in trespasses and sins. As long as Christ, our ransom price, is not released, it is certain that the debt is not paid, and we are held liable just as before, no matter how much we may trust in the supposed payment. Face your conscience, the multitude of your sins, in the damning sentence of the law. Look again into the dark chamber of the tomb. See the hand of death reaching out to lay you low. Then you will know what the Apostle Paul means with his triumphant exclamation, Christ is risen from the dead. He who died for our sins and rose again, he alone has deliverance for us from sin and death. He alone has pardon, life, and salvation. Do you live as though you were still under the rule of sin? Do you avoid situations where you know you will experience temptation? Or do you allow yourself to be trapped by temptation and give in to the lust of your eyes and heart? Do you find yourself committing the same sins over and over again in a vicious cycle? Confess this weakness of the flesh and trust in our risen Lord for forgiveness. Christ's resurrection is the positive proof that his sacrifice was indeed sufficient and fully accepted as such by God. The resurrection is God's amen to Jesus' statement, it is finished. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, God has declared the world righteous in his sight. As Paul wrote to the Christians at Rome, Jesus our Lord was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The resurrection assures us of our forgiveness. If Christ is not risen, Paul says, then also those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. In these crushing words, the Apostle Paul brings home to us what a denial of the resurrection really means. He who persists in denying the resurrection writes on every believer's tomb, lost or damned. Nothing more heartrending could be said. This would mean that the hereafter is shrouded in the darkest night, which has swallowed up those who have passed beyond and awaits those whose life is now swiftly passing away. But the final verse of our text collapses all the false deductions that would be true if Christ has not been raised. With one declaration, they fall like a house of cards. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. In Revelation 1, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. This term indicates that there were none before, but there will be many to follow. We see the first fruit on the tree, and we know that there will be more of the same kind. Christ's resurrection assures us that when he comes again on the last day, we too shall rise to everlasting life. In the Old Testament, when the harvest was gathered in, the first fruits, the first sheaf harvested, was presented as a thank offering to God. 
As certainly as Christ was raised, so certainly shall we be raised. For as the first sheaf cannot be harvested and offered unless the entire harvest is ripe and ready, so Christ cannot be raised unless all of us believers are ready to be raised also. God sees us as ready. With Christ the first fruits, the great and final resurrection has actually begun. Think of the last cliffhanger you either saw or read. The hero goes from one life-threatening mess to the next. If he gets caught in the bad guy's trap or gets seriously injured, we feel bad, but we don't give up. We know the hero will somehow pull through. And if we see that cliffhanger again, we know for sure how it will end up in a much bigger way. We don't fear death or anything that leads up to it because we know how the story is going to end up. We know how the story will end up for us after we die. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those belonging to him. Since we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it is easy for us to believe that he will also wake us up from the dead. Think of it as divine CPR. Someone collapses from a heart attack or drowns. What are we supposed to do? First, we start breathing into them, right? Without breath, all the heart pumping and drugs in the world will do nothing to bring the person back. And if we don't get to the person within a few minutes, the slack of breath will quickly kill delicate organs like the brain and kidneys. But if we can get breath into the person quickly, we have a good chance of reviving him. On the last day, a greater miracle will take place. God has a breath that revives a body that has completely dissolved in the grave or by fire or water. The Bible calls that breath the Holy Spirit. It is this living breath of God that stirred life from nothing back at the dawn of time. For most of us, this spirit was first breathed into us at our baptism, when the renewal of the Holy Spirit was poured out on us. Not only so, but we know that that same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus to life will raise us also. It is as Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our resurrection. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.